folks downstairs that can line up here in the back with Carolyn Davy and their children will be taught. So we're in Zechariah and we're venturing into chapter 9 today. I heard a good piece of business advice this week, and that was to promise smaller and deliver bigger. You know, when you come in and say you're going to do a job, it's better to be cautious about what you're promising the customer and then make it your goal to do better than that. Wouldn't that be nice, right? (laughs) But God does not take that approach. In, In Zechariah 9, he's promising big so big that uh, it, it causes us to stretch our faith. Lord, give us confidence in this. And uh, the original hearers would definitely have that reaction uh, to the promises of God. These are wonderful, wonderful promises. Increase our faith. Encourage us to, to know that you will do this and to trust you in this. Um, so Zechariah 9, it's, it's a, I couldn't break it up, really. I know that's a lot of text, and I'm often guilty of that, covering too much text. But I'm going to cover, I'm going to try to cover, I'm going to introduce the entire chapter, because it's all one piece. And if you break it up, you're going to lose uh, that unity in the, in the text. You can definitely come back and get more out of it as you study it on your own. But let me just give you a little tiny road map of, of what's happening in Zechariah and in Zechariah 9 particularly. Zechariah, in you know, Bible study circles, theological circles, we call him a post-exilic prophet, um, meaning he's writing after the Babylonian exile, uh, the time of uh, when all... Jerusalem was crushed, and people were taken away as exiles to live in Babylon. It was a 70-year period, and he's writing after that, and the people have been restored. You know, God in his grace actually worked through the Persians to help restore Israel back to their land, and they sent a big uh, group of Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild their, their capital city and their temple, which they so intensely missed. They could not worship their God. They couldn't obey God. When they would read the word of God, they might even, they wouldn't have this song, but they would think it. Lord, we want to obey your word. Would you help us obey your word? And your word tells us to sacrifice animals. We don't have a temple in which to do that. We can't obey the word because the oppression of our enemies. So they, they so longed to be restored. And so they're back in the land by God's grace and they begin to rebuild. And Zechariah is really primarily focusing in on the temple rebuilding. This is there's roughly 18 to 20 years after the temple started to be rebuilt. They got a start on it. And, you know, that project died. They had the foundation, and that was it. It was discouraging. There was a lot of opposition. There was uh, infighting, you know, within 
the Jews, they were arguing other things, and there was opposition from the other people around. Uh, so the project got stopped, and people were hugely discouraged. Now, here we are. This is just great. You know, God brought us here, and now we can't finish the temple. We can't worship God. We can't obey his word. What's the point? You know, where is God? What are you doing, God? Uh, so God raised up preachers, raised up prophets to encourage them. And God spoke his actual word through these prophets. Um, God uses a, a preacher today to read the revelation that's already been given us. Uh, but in these days, this is, you know, this is new. This is actual, fresh word of God. It's kind of exciting. Um, and this word today is the basic flow is very simple. You might have a, you might have a Bible that titles it. Mine titles it "Judgment on Israel's Enemies." So the first part is God saying, "I see all those dangerous neighbors you have. How some of them have just flourished while you're suffering, while you're in lack." And I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to bring them down, no matter how wealthy, no matter how powerful, no matter how isolated they are. And we have enemies around us that are scary and powerful and overwhelming in our own strength. We can't handle those enemies. And God says, I will take care of those enemies. I, they will not defeat you. Uh, ultimately, I will take care of them. And then, uh, he, then he promises to fully save the people of Israel, like we're going to read it all, but just poke your nose in verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. That's a huge promise, right? I mean, let's just take a historical check here, right? Has that been fully fulfilled? Come on, we ought to know. Israel, never again oppressed? <laughs> no, they were hugely oppressed. The, the Greeks, the, the Romans, uh, and, and even now, you know, they, they're the hotbed of controversy. Jerusalem's a divided city. It's not a city of peace. So these are big promises <laughs> that God is making to them, and we're in the position of waiting for them to be fully fulfilled. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So he makes this promise, your enemies are going to be taken out, and I'm going to provide peace. And then this text has these great words that we use at Palm Sunday. This text is cool because it's got some words in it that um, aren't found elsewhere, and they're just pumped with energy. You know, see verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, coming in a surprisingly humble, weak-looking way, this coming king. Um, and then more promises of salvation through this king, and then, again, the final paragraph, full and beautiful salvation to come. That's a little roadmap. I'm going to take care of your enemies, and I'm going to save you completely. Trust me. I make big promises. I'm going to deliver bigger. 
trust you. All right, let me read then uh, the word of God. This is Zechariah chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. For behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the seas and she shall be devoured by flame. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because it hopes, its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It shall, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan of Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Okay, so here, this is 2018. We're in Northern California. And a lot of that sounded confusing. Can you admit that? <laughs> so it's a vegetable soup of uh, nations that we don't think about very often. Uh, it's basically this, all the surrounding nations of Israel, of Jerusalem, that are, that are dangerous, that at, in, in past history, they've been a horrible pain in the neck. The Philistines, remember them? The Philistines. The judges, the book of Judges, are always fighting the Philistines. Uh, that's part of this list. This, this, uh, we'll probably get back to this, but I want to clarify it in verse. Verse five is kind of wonderful. It says, "Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid; Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish; Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza." Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. Those are a whole bunch of Canaanite cities. But then, continuing, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Now, verse 7, I will take away its blood from its mouth. Part of their religion was to eat blood sacrifices. And its abominations from between its teeth. The Lord's saying, some of these people who have these religious practices that are against God's law revealed in Moses, I'm, I'm going to remove their religious practices and I'm going to take their abominations from between their teeth and then it too shall be a remnant for our God. Some of those people are going to be saved. That's what that's saying. He's going to get, get them and take away their false religion and they will be a remnant 
meaning they'll be a part of God's people, and it shall be like a clan of Judah. See that? There'll be another tribe. Who are those people? Well, that's the Philistines. Those are people from Ashdod and Ashkelon. Some of, what's the promise in the book of Revelation? Does it say some, some tribe and some tongue will come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and be in heaven? No, it says every tribe and every nation. Uh, so even in this list of formidable, scary enemies, God's going to save some of those people and they'll be like one of the tribes of Judah. That last phrase is a little, uh, I looked it up especially because it confused me. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. What happened here historically is the Jebusites owned Jerusalem and for a long, long time, way, way, way too long. In fact, King David um, is the one who conquered Jerusalem eventually, driving out the Jebusites. You're saying, why is that significant? Well, the Exodus occurred around 1440 B.C., and King David was 400 years later. They still ha didn't have Jerusalem. They still had the enemy people they allowed in their nation all that time. So he conquered the Jebusites, but some of the Jebusites stayed and became uh, converted. And, and that's what he's saying. They, those people are going to be like the Jebusites that are now a part of our faith. Okay. I'm not going to talk a lot more about it. Let me continue reading. <laughs> then, verse 8, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river, probably the Euphrates River, from the, the river to the ends of the earth. That's the reign of Jesus Christ. This one, this king who came into Jerusalem uh, roughly 2,000 years ago. Okay, verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. 
and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Let's pray. Father, this is a wonderful literature, wonderful language, beautiful text, and uh, so significant and so meaningful. Lord, we, we know that we depend on you to open it to us and open our hearts to hear what you're saying to each of us. We thank you for this precious time. We commit it to you and ask, O oh Lord, uh, that you will speak to us what you want each of us to hear and to learn and be challenged by on this day. And it's through Jesus Christ alone we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's look at this text. Let's uh, go through some of the major parts. We start off with this idea of, of enemies. He had this whole list of enemies that, again, I said are hard to uh, even pronounce. But the concept of enemies we know. Uh, here's a quote from Winston Churchill. You have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. Winston Churchill. And the people of Israel, just by being the people of Israel, just by believing the word of God, uh, just by being restored and blessed by God, are hated. Uh, they didn't necessarily offend any of these neighbors, but these neighbors hate them. Uh, they, you know, they stood for the truth and they have enemies. You and I will have enemies. And the people of God have enemies. And of course, the whole concept of enemies is not necessarily people who, who hate us. Enemies can be our own selves, right? Uh, our own bad habits can be our enemies. Uh, diseases can be our enemies. Things that get us down, things that hurt us, things that distract us from God. Uh, all kinds of enemies we might have. We have to trust the Lord and go to Him to fight our enemies. And this text says the Lord sees. Look at this in uh, verse 1 of chapter 9. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. He sees. He understands. It's one of the messages of the book of Zechariah. The Lord knows what's going on. That should fuel our prayer. Lord, help us. We know you know. We trust you. He said that also down, see, in verse 8, the same thing. For now I see with my own eyes. That's been a theme in the book of Zechariah a few places. It talks about the all-seeing eyes of God. He knows what's going on. <coughs> he will bring justice. He will bring uh, victory to us. And uh, I love the image of David killing Goliath. It's a beautiful image of God 
working through his own people to slay the impossible. Um, we, we stand up against enemies that overpower us. Look at, look at these enemies. They're super wealthy. He talks about uh, Tyre and Sidon. They're very wise. They're very well-trained. You know, do not underestimate the enemy. Uh, our enemies can be very well-trained. They probably are very well-trained. Um, and Tyre has built herself a rampart Tyre was very well defended. You know, Israel's looking at, we can never overcome them. That's a scary uh, neighbor to have up there. They hate us, and they're super well defended. And then look, they, they have wealth, and they've heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. It's an interesting analogy. Do they have so much gold? It's like the mud of the streets. Um, some of our enemies are very powerful, and they may be wise and wealthy, and yet God overcomes them. And, and again, a part of this, too, is the beautiful thing is that God can, will convert some of our enemies, as I pointed out um, down in verse 7. He's going to save them. He's going to overcome them by bringing them to himself and save them uh, a beautiful thing. And, and God is promising peace, isn't he? It's a very big promise. And throughout this whole passage, again, let's go back to sort of roadmap idea. Bible students, theologians look at a passage like this, and there's a discussion over how this will be fulfilled. Um, and I think it's probably really important to think of it um, in three ways. One is, this is meant to be an, an encouragement to the people that are going through this struggle right here and now. And the encouragement to them is that God sees what's going on. He promises to save. He'll take care of you in his own time and in his way. Trust him. Trust him. Um, but then this, the second level is, well, what about these promises? Like I pointed out, even when I read it, uh, verse 8, no oppressor shall again march over them. Lord, that's a very big promise, and in our world, we have not seen that. So how is that going to be fulfilled? And it's kind of a big division in uh, theology on this. Uh, one group of people, and I guess this is, I was raised this way, and I still believe this, takes it very literally that uh, on this earth, God is going to come and Christ will reign for a thousand years, set up a kingdom, and no more will Israel be trampled upon. Uh, and it'll be this fantastic, beautiful thing where all the nations come and, and all of the language in this passage. I think really, to me, this is one of the reasons I still believe it. Uh, it this is literal language. I think, I think the people of Israel would read it and say, you're kidding me. That's, that's fulfilled metaphorically in, in the Gentile church? <laughs> I mean, I think that's sort of like promising big and delivering small. That's just my point of view. Because um, the other option is to uh, believe that these things are filled now metaphorically in the church itself, that the church is God's beautiful big work, and he's saved people from every tribe and every nation. You know, I'm not Jewish, uh, I'm, you know, Swedish, Norwegian, um, and I'm saved 
by the power of God, and I'm a part of this church, and there's peace in the church. The true church of God is a peaceful place, and the kingdom of God is the church. Um, so that, that's, that's the second way to take it. it you know, first of all, this is encouragement to the people here and now. Secondly, is it talking about a future, actual, literal event, or is it metaphorically fulfilled in the church itself? And then the third idea is there are spiritual truths here that apply to us and encourage us right now. Uh, beautiful, beautiful spiritual truths. And the idea that God will guard us, guard, he guards his people. That's a promise for us. You know, he will not allow us to be destroyed. Uh, we will not fall. We may stumble. We may, we will suffer. Uh, but his promises are true and real. And no matter what happens, we are the victors in Jesus Christ. And no oppressor shall win ultimately over God's kingdom. So peace is a reality that he brings. Then there's this next section I want to look at very uh, carefully. Verse 9. You know, some of the most famous words in this text of Scripture. Uh, beautiful, beautiful words. Again, if you're newer to the church, we have a thing the week before Easter. It's called Palm Sunday because it it remembers the time when Jesus uh, actually literally did this. He, he borrowed a donkey and sat on the donkey and rode into Jerusalem. And the whole city, it says, was in an uproar over him. And, and hundreds of people were worshiping him as he rode into the city. And it's an actual, literal fulfillment of this section of Scripture. And it's beautiful. It's, it's a command to us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So plug this into their current situation. Uh, I've accurately described it. They were discouraged. Their temple was in ruins. They felt weak and silly and <laughs> impotent. You know, they, they couldn't get things together, and they were, they were frustrated with leadership and in their, uh, their religious community. And what is the command to God? You know, be the command from God. Be depressed. Uh, whine and complain. No. It says, you rejoice greatly. You rejoice greatly. Rejoice and shout. I mean, it's literally a command to be loud in worship. Uh, responding to what? My current situation? No. Responding to the huge promises of God. He's going to save us. At some point in our lives, in our reality, no oppressor will march over us again. Um, again, look at the word of God. This is the word of God. This is a command of God. It's not a suggestion. Rejoice greatly. Rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, the Apostle Paul commands. Re be thankful for the really, really horrible things. We need to exercise this in the spiritual discipline. Be thankful for what the Lord is bringing into our lives. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, behold, your king is coming. 
asking, imagine these folks again. It's not dissimilar to our situation. We can't see Jesus riding a donkey today into Jerusalem. We can't see Jesus feeding the 25,000 on the uh, hillside. We can't see him raising Lazarus from the dead. I haven't seen that. And I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never seen one of the Christians get out of the casket. Imagine a Christian pastor coming and saying, oh, dearly beloved, come out of the grave. Go out. <laughs> right? And people would say, he's come unhinged. <laughs> Let's get him off the stage. Okay, thank you, Pastor. That was sweet. You know, we don't expect a resurrection from the dead, right? But this is the reality. We have an all-powerful God who is going to save us. And his promises are real. So, not that we become unhinged, but we rejoice greatly. I mean, we're actually people of joy in the midst of suffering. And yes, it's difficult, but he says rejoice and shout. Your, your king is coming. Your king is coming. Well, where's the king? They didn't see the Messiah. This is, you know, round figures four to five hundred years before Christ. They didn't see Christ. So it's, it's faith. He's coming. Trust the Lord God. And very much the case for us. Jesus is coming again. Uh, he, and, and we're called to totally trust that. And he may come today. Look, behold, your king is coming, righteous. And having salvation is he. Humble. Now there's a hint. Humble and mounted on a donkey. By the way, this is a unique expression. Kings did not ride donkeys. Uh, historically, after Solomon, Solomon had a, a bunch of horses. Kings did not ride donkeys. Okay, this is not, you'll read this somewhere, but I've researched it and, and they said, no, this is pure humility, humility or humiliation. That the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus comes in this surprising, weird, dismissible package. I mean, you look at him and say, He's riding a donkey. You know, imagine coming up to a big Harley bar. All these sweet Harleys out there. All chrome and beautiful. And you come up. I'm here on my moped. <laughs> I'm here to join you fellers. What, what you drinking today? You know, you, you might get uh, <laughs> the, not the reaction you kind of want. You know, you're not riding a Harley. It's a Harley. It's a Harley Davidson, as Bill would say. Yeah, Jesus isn't riding a Harley. He's not riding the, the mount of choice. He's deniable. He's flushable. That's the way he has chosen to be for this epic. Why? Because he says, trust me. Come, believe my word regardless of how things are faring. So it's pretty cool. Promise big. Here's just uh, an old-fashioned slide I threw in here. The king is coming. There's a huge promise. Still, yes, he came, but he's still coming. We believe he came, and he's coming again. The, the advent. We believe in the first advent, and we're waiting for the second advent. He's coming to straighten it all out, and he's got the perfect plan. 
you know, in the big uh, ebb and flow, the history of this thing, theologians, we argue over it. Believe me, he's got a plan. I think that whatever point of view we have, we need to be compassionate toward each other. One of the worst things I think is when we're throwing around, well, you're a heretic for believing that. You're a heretic for believing these Bible-believing brothers. No, no, it's, it's the future. We don't fully understand. Let's hold it with humility. But the thing is, he's coming. <laughs> and that's the big thing. This, this is awesome, though, uh, to me. He will remove war from Ephraim and, and Jerusalem. It's interesting. See verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's going to rule. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journey run. He is going to reign all over the globe. The whole earth is his kingdom. And interestingly enough, if you're into the history at all, Ephraim, I'm saying that wrong, it's Ephraim, by the way. I don't, for some reason I got it in my head. Ephraim, but it's Ephraim, Ephraim, Ephraim. This is one of the northern tribes, one of the key northern tribes. One of the sons of Joseph was Ephraim. And they're gone. Historically, even in this day, they're, they're non-existent. But God's saying, no, I've got a plan for them. I know where they are. And I'm going to bring them back. That's a couple of times. In, you see, I've, it's in verse 13 as well. I have bent Judah as my bow. He's going to use them to fight the enemy. And I have made Ephraim its arrow. He's, he's talking about a restored south and north kingdoms of God. Like, oh, that's impossible. That's too marvelous. God would say, oh. so should it be too marvelous for me? <laughs> Just because you think it's unlikely? <laughs> I love that. That's in that's the last chapter. Um, no, no, it's not too marvelous for God. The God who speaks a world into existence can do this. Um, Ephraim and Jerusalem, he will bring world peace. World peace. Massive promise. And he's going to deliver... You can't even deliver bigger than that, but imagine it being bigger in our experience. We're to be people of joy because of his massive, wonderful promises that he has given us. And just to highlight the means of this, verse 11, uh, this, is, this is unique words, verbiage from this text of Scripture that Jesus quotes, you know, in communion. At the Last Supper, he quotes this, this. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All of this salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. He is the Savior. The blood of my agreement with you is the blood that he sheds. I mean, gorgeous words. The language in this text far exceeds my ability to describe it. Look at verse 11. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. All of us are in a waterless pit, a, a pit of despair. Uh, 
no resources, no ability. We can't climb out of that pit. We need a rescue. (laughs) Jesus is the rescue. The blood of the covenant rescues us, frees us from our sin that is overwhelming. And then, then let's finish up this text by going, just going right down to the bottom. Um, all of this is just beautiful, uh, apocalyptic, and wonderful. Uh, but let's just go to 16 and 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. So this full and complete eternal salvation. We would say, back when I was a kid, I was raised in a, a little... Baptist church, and we would talk about, are you saved? Are, did you get saved? It's kind of language we used a lot. It's good. It's biblical language, but it's sort of fallen away. We'd say, is that person saved? Are, are you saved? And what we mean by that is, have you come to the point in your life where you realize you're a horrible, hopeless, bottomless pit dweller, waterless pit dweller, and Jesus, in his kindness, has taken you out of that pit and washed you clean, and given you eternal life, you have faith that Jesus is your Savior. And you come to that point where you say, yes, Lord, please save me. And the Bible says, you are saved. You know, if you died right now, you would go to heaven, because Jesus is this amazing Savior. But we're still yet to be saved as well. I'm waiting for the completion of it in the Bible says we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We're, we're still broken. We're likely to have many, many problems multiple times a day because of our own sinfulness and we live in a broken world. So, so that's what this is about. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. That we'll be fully, completely saved. You know, hallelujah. As the flock of his own people For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And the word there for land is the word for Adam. Uh, Adam, his name is dirt, quite frankly. Why? Because he's made out of dirt. This is, the jewels will shine on his dirt. God likes dirt. (laughs) And uh, he's going to have his land. And his saved ones will be like an incredible crown, the jewels in the crown shining on his dirt, uh, making it a lot better because of the grace of God. And then just look at it in verse 17 again. If you hear nothing else, look at this verse 17. For how great is his goodness. God's goodness is what saves us. He is motivated by his powerful goodness to save us. And how great his beauty. God loves aesthetics. And salvation is ultimately a beautiful thing. A beautiful, wonderful thing. The God who created redwood trees. The God who created all the beauty around us. You know, beautiful colors in our, in our windows. God loves symmetry, loves beauty, loves art. Love's color crazily splashed across the sky. Uh, he, he loves beauty, right? And this, the plan of salvation is ultimately about demonstrating his goodness and his beauty. How great, 
how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. So, let me give you some practical ways to uh, take away from this, this sermon. Very, very practical. Not on a slide, just verbally here. What's some takeaways here? What, you know, really, really practical. It was kind of an impractical sermon, perhaps, I hope not. But I think the, one of the main messages for people in the book of Zechariah and for us is we, we have to trust the Lord always. He's got a big plan. He's working his big plan. I don't know which little tiny part I have in it, you know. I don't know where I am in your big plan, but I trust you. You're God, and you're good, and you're beautiful. Faith is confidence in what we, what, do not see. Faith is confidence in what we do not see. He sees. We don't see it. And I say theologically, secondly, let's exercise patience with one another and uh, tolerate and listen as we discuss these things. And finally, practice the discipline of worship. Again, it's not a suggestion, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. The discipline of worship is, Lord, I'm going to slow down my everything else and I'm going to concentrate on how good you are. Your promises are wonderful and real and I rejoice in you. I rejoice greatly in you. And I shout aloud sometimes uh, in my joy over you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this text. There's a lot of beautiful ideas and language in this holy text of Scripture. And I commit it to you in the sense that I ask you to please teach us, encourage us. We all need encouragement. Many parts of our lives are overwhelming. And we just bring them to you, Lord, and ask for your special grace and work in, in the difficult parts. We, we trust you, Lord. We know you've got a very big plan. And we don't understand our little niche in it. But we trust you, Lord. We look forward to the king, the king coming. And Lord, help us to submit to him now and enjoy him forever. Amen.